Hello and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode I'll be reading and discussing the sections of manly prudence and of the stillest hour in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And I'll also have a wee discussion of the film Meet the Parents to accompany the section of manly prudence. So let's get started. Of manly prudence. It is not the height, it is the abyss that is terrible. The abyss where the glance plunges downward and the hand grasps upward. There the heart grows giddy through its twofold will. Ah, friends, have you too divined my heart's twofold will? That my glance plunges into the heights and that my hand wants to hold on to the depths and lean there. That, that is my abyss and my danger. My will clings to mankind. I bind myself to mankind with fetters because I am drawn up to the superman. For my other will wants to draw me up to the superman. That my hand may not quite lose its belief in firmness. That is why I live blindly among men, as if I did not recognize them. I do not recognize you men. This darkness and consolation has often spread around me. I sit at the gateway and wait for every rogue and ask, who wants to deceive me? This is my first manly prudence. I let myself be deceived so as not to be on guard against deceivers. Ah, if I were on guard against men, how could men be an anchor for my ball? It would be torn upward and away too easily. This providence lies over my fate. I have to be without foresight, and he who does not want to die of thirst among men must first learn to drink out of all glasses, and he who wants to stay clean among men must know how to wash himself even with dirty water. And to console myself I often spoke thus, Well then, come on, old heart, a misfortune failed to harm you, and joy that is your good fortune. So what a line that kicks off this section is not the height, it is the abyss that is terrible. And of course we have this whole relation between depth and height that's going on. So we have this whole relation to the abyss and its relation into our bodily desires and ultimately our bodily desires causing us suffering. And on the other hand, height is it has its relation of course into spirituality and organized religion and traditionally at least we'd have the whole take upon that as religion enabling us through their ethical models and principles and standards and so forth to all alleviate our bodily suffering and to overcome our desires and get control of them and so forth through that move towards the height and it really has that interest and relation into this sort of spirituality at the very start of the section because as he says it's precisely the downward aspect of it all the whole point in which everybody is in this state of continual suffering and then we're leaning into all that and into this depth basically is that is the danger to us all And this ties in quite nicely to one of Nietzsche's famous statements as well. When you look into the abyss, the abyss stares back into you. 
and of what's so great how it fits into this section is precisely that whole idea of allowing your current situation or state of suffering or mental state to therefore have complete control over you and take you over and make you miserable and therefore there's no light at the end of the tunnel and what's so great about that as well as we can fit into the previous section and the whole problems with dieting that we picked upon in the nutty professor as well when somebody gets stuck in that whole rut of not being able to achieve the goals and targets that they've set themselves and therefore continually feel horrible and ultimately just staring straight into the abyss and can't ever see a way in which they can meet those targets and never think they will achieve the targets and lose the weight and so a way out of that abyss for Zarathustra he says has that relation back into the superman and the superman is ultimately going to be that reinvigorated idea of humanity as something that's greater than itself because all that humanity has done is ultimately been like Sherman Clump in The Naughty Professor when he's feeling really horrible about himself sitting there crying and eating and ultimately the Superman is that point in which it's that reinvigoration of humanity to therefore get up and get out there and start exercising and stop feeling so bad about yourself and get out there and start kicking some butt ultimately and so that's what that upward motion is precisely that invigoration of humanity itself where Nietzsche wants us all to go and then this leads us into the first manly prudence I let myself be deceived so as not to be on guard against deceivers and this fits in nicely to the line as well and he who does not want to die of thirst among men must learn to drink out of all glasses and he who wants to stay clean among men must know how to wash himself even with dirty water and so what Nietzsche is getting at here is that we have to be open and take upon various different opinions and ideas and we shouldn't have our own opinions set in any given way because it's that line about the ball as well. Bonsafai, how could men be an anchor for my ball? It would be torn up and away too easily. So it's this whole idea as well. If you have a standard and you try to then reaffirm that specific idea or concept or opinion and so on, then it'll have to then go up against all the other different opinions and somebody therefore becomes very stuck about their ways very ignorant about different ways of doing things and different opinions and it's that just whole idea therefore of drinking out of lots of different cups allowing yourself to come out of your shell and don't be so much stuck in a rot and therefore ignorant of other people's ideas and then trying to continually implement your own viewpoint and ideas thinking is always superior because in that given instance that self-superiority will be torn away eventually through all the different challenges that's brought into it because it's not going to be absolutely concrete as an opinion and this folds into the other aspect about it as well the whole thing about letting yourself be deceived as not to be on the guard against deceivers therefore allows yourself to have a flawed opinion as well 
because you're going to have taken upon potentially a bad opinion about something and then accepted it allows you to therefore recognize the flaws within your own ideas and opinions and other people's at the same time and never to have something as absolutely concrete perfect absolute and without flaws so really for the first manly prudence then we can say is the whole idea about being open to different opinions accepting that whole idea of diversity and allowing for our own opinions to be challenged and that our own opinions as well can be flawed so let's continue on with the second manly prudence this however is my second manly prudence i am more considerate to the vain than to the proud is wounded vanity not the mother of all tragedies but where pride is wounded there surely grows up something better than pride if life is to be pleasant to watch its play must be well acted for that however good actors are needed i found all vain people to be good actors they act and desire that others shall want to watch them all their spirit is in this desire they act themselves they invent themselves i like to watch life in their vicinity it cures melancholy i am considerate to the vain because they are physicians to my melancholy and hold me fast to mankind as to a play and further who can estimate the full depth of the vain man's modesty i love and pity him on account of his modesty he wants to learn belief in himself from you he feeds upon your glances he eats praise out of your hands he believes even your lies when you lie favorably to him for his heart sighs in its depths what am i and if virtue that is unconscious of itself be the true virtue while the vain man is unconscious of his modesty so with the second manly prudence i am more considerate to the vain than to the proud and why does the vain have more preference over the proud as he says is that once you injure somebody's pride therefore they learn the errors of their ways and therefore grow as an individual but ultimately trying to be critical of someone's own vanity they don't listen to you in any given way and they just sort of reaffirm their own vanity and own sort of egoism about themselves and we have the whole relation into vanity and acting as the whole performance and whole process of beautification if you want to call it or doing yourself up or making yourself attractive by doing whatever various different acts shaving plucking putting on makeup and so on it's that whole performance in order to make yourself look good and then how you act of course is all based upon how you want others to perceive you and so of course nietzsche finds this all incredibly humorous this whole performance about them as an individual and the whole making themselves up to be beautiful and so on because it's all, of course all in the aspect of somebody else's expectations of what they're meant to look like of course beauty standards are going to be judged by whatever social and cultural norms that are in place as well and so it's that whole performative aspect of beauty and being attractive that ultimately says is cures is melancholy because they're very good actors at what they do and then 
we have the whole relation into modesty, which at first seems kind of strange because the whole purpose about being vain is to be very extravagant, at least in your appearance, and then potentially in how you're going to dress as well. It's not going to just be in a regular clothes, but in some sort of way to make yourself enhanced your own beauty in a given way. So what exactly is modest about that? And it's not really about the whole extravagance of how someone appears, but rather what Nietzsche is saying about modesty is that within the given sphere of life, just solely concentrating just on your appearance is ultimately a very modest and simple thing to focus on in life's grand scheme of things. Like all the different problems there are in the world politically or all the different facets in life that you can go into and all the different things you can study, just solely focusing on your appearance is ultimately a very modest and simple thing to do. And of course, what is the whole purpose of making yourself attractive and beautiful in the first place is to be adored, to have praise upon you, to say how beautiful you are. And therefore, even in the given instance, if somebody's going to lie to your face, they're not going to really care about it because it just reaffirms the fact that they're attractive. But what's interesting is Nietzsche touches upon that whole depth to the situation to say, well, in the midst of all that peacocking, as you could call it, and that whole aspect of making yourself attractive and beautiful in the first place, what really is the deep point about all of that is that question of what am I in the midst of it all? So really a deep question about yourself. Who are you as an individual? Or what am I? And of course, there's a great irony to this question as well, because its immediate first answer is only what other people say that what you are. And to say, well, you only are beautiful because of the social and cultural norms, and you've adhered to what is the standard of what beauty is, and so forth. That's what defines who you are as a person, and your attractiveness. And then comes in, of course, the question, but what about depth? What about personality and so forth? Rather than all this focus upon just the surface quality and whether somebody's attractive or not and how beautiful they are. So continuing on to the third manly prudence that rounds off the section. This, however, is my third manly prudence. I do not let your timorousness spoil my pleasure at the sight of the wicked. I am happy to see the marvels the hot sun hatches, tigers and palm trees and rattlesnakes. Among men, too, there is a fine brood of the hot sun, and much that is marvel in the wicked. Indeed, as your wisest men didn't seem so very wise to me, so I found that human wickedness, too, did not live up to its reputation. And I often shook my head and asked, why go on rattling, you rattlesnakes? Truly there is a future, even for evil, and the hottest south has not yet been discovered for mankind. How many a thing is now called grossest wickedness, which is only twelve feet broad and three months long. One day, however, greater dragons will come into the world. For, that the superman may not lack his dragon, the super dragon worthy of him, much hot sunshine must yet burn upon damp primeval forests. Your wildcats must have become tigers, and your poisonous toads 
crocodiles, for the good huntsman shall have a good hunt. And truly, you good and just, there is much in you that is laughable, and especially your fear of him who was formerly called the devil. Your souls are so unfamiliar with what is great that the superman will be fearful to you in his goodness and you wise and enlightened men you would flee from the burning sun of wisdom in which the superman joyfully bathes his nakedness you highest men my eyes have encountered this is my doubt of you and my secret laughter i think you would call my superman a devil alas i grew weary of these highest and best men from their heights i long to go up out away to the superman a horror overcame me when i saw these best men naked then there grew for me the wings to soar away into the distant futures into most distant futures into more southerly south than artist ever dreamed of thither where gods are ashamed of all clothes but i want to see you disguised you neighbours and fellowmen and well dressed in vain and worthy as the good and just and i myself will sit among you disguised so that i may misunderstand you and myself that in fact is my last manly prudence thus spoke zarathustra so then for the third manly prudence we have i do not let your timorousness spoil my pleasure at the sight of the wicked and it's that whole initial point that nietzsche makes here that what people deem to be wicked or an evil thing can we really say that it genuinely is and of course there's that whole point as well that our idea of what something is is bad or evil to do also changes over time and the same thing for good actions as well but the whole point here as well is that an evil action ultimately people make mountains out of molehills is a good expression to ultimately make something much more grander than it actually is why is that the case because as he says people love to go on a good hunt and therefore love to have this whole sense of justice and righteousness and bringing the whole sort of force upon their own opinions about what's good and therefore righting the wrongs of the wrongdoer and therefore showing the other person to be a horrible individual and that happens of course quite regularly you can see in the news whenever a scapegoat is made and therefore you have this whole vilification of an individual made by the media in order for them to look really horrible and nasty and despicable and then of course the whole point about it is just to then sell newspapers or for people to tune into what's tv stations and so on but it's that whole idea here that Nietzsche's also touched upon the problem of mob sort of justice and mob mentality in that sense of well you ultimately can vilify someone as an individual and write horrible things that are abusive about them but you can be utterly totally wrong about what you're saying about them and a good example of course of that is the whole way in which marlon manson was used as a scapegoat to somehow be a justification for the columbine shootings in that given way in which we can see in that instance the media completely vilified marlon manson as an individual and therefore try to blame him 
and to write it have direct responsibility upon him and not therefore upon the shooters themselves and the mental health problems that the shooters were having and so on and it just goes to show well ultimately in that given instance you are making a mountain out of a molehill because you're pointing a finger and blame at something only to therefore try and justify yourselves and make yourselves sell papers and so on but what you're ultimately doing is completely wrong because there's no justification for that claim whatsoever and then we have quite an interesting discussion the superman come back into it again and where people would be fearful of this superman as a character because where Nietzsche ultimately wants us to go as well as to sort of rehabilitate us as a human species away from us being in this state of continual nihilism in towards us as more creative reaffirming all the different joyful things life affirming not focused upon metaphysics death in the afterlife but rather the here and now and ultimately if Nietzsche says as well if I presented to you this as an idea it's something that's meant to be very positive what will people do with that of course is completely just take it and try to just say it's something that's horrible and completely bad as well so Nietzsche's not a complete idiot as well whenever anybody tries to do something positive there's immediately that reaction against anybody trying to do anything whatsoever in the negative and this is exactly what he sees happening in this given instance and quite interestingly we have just a very brief discussion about nakedness in a way in which we have this sort of like garden of eden sort of relation into nakedness going on to say well if we looked at humanity they're all clothed in the first place why is that because they're shameful of themselves and shameful of them as a human species but rather if we looked at the superman we'd look at this ultimately thing that's not ashamed of what it is whatsoever so why would it need to have clothes on basically is the argument and so you would have let's say very much a michelangelo's david sort of unashamedly just standing there naked and all his glory with all his bits hanging out why is that because that's what the superman ultimately is an affirmation of humanity with all the bits out and then wrapping up the section we have quite an interesting statement which is to say well all you vain people all you people who hold up a very high standards of good and justice and so forth how about you disguise yourselves ultimately going back into that sort of first point let yourselves be misunderstood and don't be in this whole sort of performative aspect but let yourselves be deceived and in doing so you become open very much so to various different opinions and ways you can think about things and then also allowing yourself to be challenged and for your own opinions to be flawed about how you think so it's nice how the very end of the section goes back into the initial sort of points that made for the first manly prudence and what's also interesting as well as that whole point of Zarathustra himself sitting in the midst of all them as well because it's again that whole idea against the sort of traditional prophet 
here of Zarathustra himself allowing himself to be deceived by others, therefore the importance of other people and other people's opinions, as well as not allowing for what he says to be held in any sort of great standards whatsoever. And so a great movie for this section, I thought, was the film Meet the Parents from 2000, starring Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro. It's a great wee comedy film. And the summary of the plot here is from Google. Greg Falker decides to spend a weekend with his girlfriend's parents before proposing to her. However, her father instantly dislikes Greg which makes his stay far worse than he imagined. And so the whole point of the film as well is to get into the very traditional sort of aspect of the boyfriend asking the father's permission and for him to say it's okay in order for ultimately Ben Stiller in the movie to marry his girlfriend. And the whole thing that makes it a comedy as well is because of Robert De Niro's character who's the father, who's called Jack Burns, ultimately comes from a very sort of conservative and has very much a background, as we learn out in the film as well, as an ex-CIA agent. So one of the main things about Robert De Niro's character as well is that he's able to tell whether someone was lying or not. And of course that pops out in quite humorous ways in the movies and the paranoia that Ben Stiller's character has as well whether he's trying to always do the right thing and never ultimately to end up in Robert De Niro's bad books because he wants to ultimately marry his daughter at the end of the day and so at the start of the film we have that sort of clash and that whole sort of you're not really meeting my expectations and by the end of the film of course then we have everything turn around and acceptance of Ben Stiller's character in order for a marriage to happen in the first place and what's so great about the film as well for fitting it into the section is that first point on the manly prudence to always remain open and drink from many different cups as Nietzsche says ultimately as Jack Burns has to do is to challenge his own sort of ideal image of the perfect boyfriend that's set up within his own mind because as even his wife says in the movie is anyone actually going to be acceptable and it's sort of that point as well when we set up such a high standard within our own minds for something is anything at all going to ultimately be acceptable and fit this very high standard we could have possibly fit in the first place because then comes around different things that are going to come in and challenge that and of course the healthy thing to do and the positive thing for us is to challenge ourselves and lower our barrier down and question why we set it so high in the first place and we can sort of get into the whole sort of humor from the section as well whenever anybody sets up such a high barrier as well in the way in which it plays out in the film because Ben Stiller's character lies several times as well through the film just because he wants to fit into Robert De Niro's idea of what a perfect ideal boyfriend would be and it gets to the point of complete absurdity of course because then we have at one given moment 
Ben Stiller's character lying about the fact he's meant to have lived on a farm and then milking his cat. And the whole humorous conversation about how do you milk a cat. And so overall for the section then, we have the whole idea about being open, challenging our ideas, affirming our flaws, affirming the fact that we ourselves can set barriers too high and we need to challenge ourselves, challenge these barriers and accept our flaws and accept the fact that we can have flawed opinions and views of things and then that allowing ourselves in a very positive way to lower our barriers down and transform the way in which we think about things. Moving on to the next section, the stillest hour. What has happened to me, my friends? You behold me troubled, driven forth, unwillingly obedient, ready to go, alas, to go away from you. Yes, Zarathustra must go back into his solitude once again, but this time the bear goes unhappily back into his cave. What has happened to me? Who has ordered this? Alas, my mistress will have it so. She told me, have I ever told you her name? Yesterday towards evening, my stillest hour spoke to me. That is the name of my terrible mistress. And thus it happened, for I must tell you everything, that your hearts may not harden against me for departing so suddenly. Do you know the terror which assails him who is falling asleep? He is terrified down to his toes, because the ground seems to give way and the dream begins. I tell you this in a parable. Yesterday at the stillest hour, the ground seemed to give way. My dream began. The hand moved, the clock of my life held its breath, and I had never heard such stillness around me, so that my heart was terrified. Then, voicelessly, something said to me, You know, Zarathustra. And I cried out for terror at this whisper and the blood drained from my face, but I kept silent. Then again, something said to me voicelessly, You know, Zarathustra, but you do not speak. And I answered at last defiantly, Yes, I know, but I will not speak. Then again, something said to me voicelessly, You will not, Zarathustra. Is this true? Do not hide yourself in your defiance. And I wept and trembled like a child and said, Alas, I want to, but how can I? Release me from this alone. It is beyond my strength. Then again something said to me voicelessly, Of what consequence are you, Zarathustra? Speak your teaching and break. And I answered, Ah, is it my teaching? Who am I? I await one who is more worthy. I am not worthy even to break by it. Then again something said to me voicelessly, Of what consequence are you? You are not yet humble enough. Humility has the toughest hide. And I answered, What has the hide of my humility not already endured? I live at the foot of my heights. How high are my peaks? No one has yet told me, but I know my valleys well. Then again something said to me voicelessly, O Zarathustra, he who has to move mountains, moves valleys and lowlands too. And I answered, My words have as yet moved no mountains, and what I have spoken has not reached men. Indeed, I went to men, but I have not yet attained them. 
Then something said to me voicelessly, How do you know that? The dew falls upon grass when the night is at its most silent. And I answered, They mocked me when I found and walked my own way, and in truth my feet trembled then, and they spoke to me thus, You have forgotten the way, now you will also forget how to walk. Then again something said to me voicelessly, Of what consequence is their mockery? You are the one who has unlearned how to obey. Now you shall command. Do you know what it is all men most need? Him who commands great things. To perform great things is difficult, but more difficult is to command great things. This is the most unpardonable thing about you. You have the power, and you will not rule. And I answered, I lack the lion's voice for command. Then again something said to me, as in a whisper, it is the stillest hour which brings the storm. Thoughts that come on doves' feet guide the world. O oh, Zarathustra, you shall go as a shadow of that which must come. Thus you will command, and commanding lead the way. And I answered, I am ashamed. Then again something said to me voicelessly, You must yet become a child, and without shame. The pride of youth is still in you. You have become young late. But he who wants to become a child must first overcome even his youth. And I considered long and trembled. At last, however, I said what I had said at first. I will not. Then a laughing broke out around me. Alas, how this laughing tore my body and ripped open my heart. And for the last time something said to me, O Zarathustra, your fruits are ripe, but you are not ripe for your fruits. So you must go back into solitude for you shall yet grow mellow. And again something laughed and fled, and then it grew still around me as if with twofold stillness. I, however, lay on the ground, and the sweat poured from my limbs. Now you have heard everything, and why I must return to my solitude. I have kept nothing back from you, my friends. And you have heard, too, who is the most silent of men, and intends to remain so. Ah, my friends, I should have something more to tell you. I should have something more to give you. Why do I not give it? Am I then mean? When Zarathustra had said these words, however, the violence of his grief and the nearness of his departure from his friends overwhelmed him. So he wept aloud, and no one knew how to comfort him. But that night he went away alone and forsook his friends. And so, for the last section that wraps up part two, we have Zarathustra again leave to go back into his cave up in the mountains again. And so we have this sort of overall theme of, within what's happened in the start of part two as well, Zarathustra having been up in the start of his cave, come back down, and then he's gone back up again. So we have this whole great movement of Zarathustra continually going up and down his mountain to go and live in his cave as he does. And the whole point about it is, of course, touching upon the whole idea of a prophet. What does he do? He takes himself away from people, has a good meditation, reflects upon life, thinks about the deeper things, brings his wisdom to mankind, ultimately then for mankind to reject him, and his ideas, and therefore he goes back into the mountains. And then the whole idea of him coming back down again was because there were 
starting to accept his ideas, but then ultimately misusing them and so he comes down to try and fix everything out and then again at the end of part two we have Zarathustra himself talk to this sort of disembodied voice that's talking within his own mind and having this back and forth of sort of why no one's following him around at all why he's not having any sense of popularity whatsoever why is Zarathustra ultimately failing as a prophet and why is teachings failing, and why is nobody listening to him? And so we have this whole aspect of sort of Nietzsche himself, kind of maybe in an autobiographical way here, reflecting upon his own sort of popularity, is not really at any sort of great height as well, and also saying that, well, eventually people will grasp onto his whole idea and way of thinking about things. And we get that sort of in the line of, it is the stillest words which bring the storm. Thoughts that come on dove's feet guide the world. So it's that whole idea about the people who aren't looked upon in any great way within their given time periods. And those people, he's saying, will make potentially a great change in the future. For humanity so that even though he doesn't have the popularity now that's not going to matter in the present because in the future ultimately his own view can have immense popularity and benefit for everybody and then we have at the same time this interesting back and forth that's going on within the voice and Zarathustra himself with the voice saying you have the whole backing basically and power to command and take charge of everybody else so therefore that's something that you should do and Zarathustra fighting against that saying I lack the lion's voice for command and so it's quite interesting that whole idea as well of Zarathustra fighting against sort of the whole traditional idea of a prophet here that not wanting to have a whole command over others at the same time of saying well it's going to have popularity and effect on hopefully people in the future but not into such a way that it should be an absolute commandment that these teachings should be and Zarathustra doesn't want to become this sort of idol that's held up and idolicized in any sort of way and it's that whole thing that fits back into the idea of the three metamorphoses as well way back in part one when he's saying i lack the lion's voice for command is to say well the three metamorphoses was all about the burdens that the camel takes upon that's ultimately the societal burdens and the norms therefore all the problems within a given time period weigh someone down the lion therefore is a thing that fights back and in that section it's the fighting back against this immense dragon and upon its scales are all these burdens and problems from the entire history of sort of humanity you have to go against but Zarathustra doesn't have that he doesn't have that lion-like nature and then the voice again says to him in order to have this sort of command in the first place, you need to therefore become like a child. 
And that's like the third part of the three metamorphoses as well, that childlike nature that allows for new things to emerge once all that battling and challenge and, and all the problems have been overcome, allows for all that newness to therefore emerge. But then again, Zarathustra says, no, I will not therefore overcome myself and be like a child either. So he lacks both those given things of lion-like nature for commanding and fighting back against things and he doesn't have this childlike nature for wanting to develop new things either so what are we ultimately left with at the end of part two for Zarathustra as a character is Zarathustra as a camel then basically lacking the capabilities of having either the lion-like nature or the childlike nature so either the possibility of challenging and fighting back or the creation of new things, he's just a camel that ultimately is just there, who's just burdened down with everything. And that's what this disembodied voice as well says to him. This is why you have to go back into your cave to get over this camel-like nature and develop yourself as more of an individual. So overall, interesting wee section to round off part two with Zarathustra doing a little bit of battling within himself and that internal struggle that's sort of going on within his own character. Many thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed my discussion of the sections Manly Prudence and of the Stillest Hour in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Feel free to check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy and also feel free to drop me a wee email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com and I could be also found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time.